Welcome to the Yogic Studies Podcast. I'm your host, Seth Powell. This podcast features in-depth explorations into the traditions of yoga, Sanskrit, Indian philosophy, and South Asian religions. Through candid conversations with scholars and practitioners, we will immerse in the latest and most cutting-edge research on all things yoga. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode one of the Yogic Studies podcast. Today, I am joined by Dr. Finian Garrity of Brown University to discuss Vedic ritual, Om, and early yoga. Finian M.M. Garrity is a historian of Indian religions focusing on sound and mantra. After earning a PhD in South Asian studies from Harvard University, he was a postdoctoral fellow at the Yale University Institute of Sacred Music. Finn is currently visiting assistant professor of religious studies, the Contemplative Studies Program, and the Center for Contemporary South Asia at Brown University, where he teaches courses on mantra, yoga, ritual, and the senses. Integrating the study of pre-modern texts with insights from fieldwork in contemporary South India Finn's research explores how sound has shaped religious doctrines and practices on the subcontinent from the late Bronze Age up through today. His current book project for Oxford University Press, This Whole World is Om, A History of the Sacred Syllable in India, is the first ever monograph on Om, the preeminent mantra and ubiquitous sacred syllable of Indian religions. And as many of our listeners will know, Finn recently taught an online course for us here at Yogic Studies entitled YS-104, The Story of Om, Sacred Sound, and the Vedic Roots of Yoga. So if you enjoy this conversation here today with Finian Garrity and you'd like to study further with him, we highly recommend this course. Our listeners at the Yogic Studies podcast can receive 20% off by signing up with the promo code OM. 20. That is capital O-M and the number 20. And you can sign up at yogicstudies.com forward slash YS-104. All right, so without further ado, let's kick off the Yogic Studies podcast and join me in welcoming Dr. Finian Garrity. All right, well, welcome, Finn. It's great to have you here for the first ever Yogic Studies podcast. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. Um, I'm really excited to have you here on this first episode for a number of reasons, but in particular because of the nature of your work on Vedic traditions and on Om. It gives us an opportunity here at the outset of this new project this podcast to sort of go all the way back and to our earliest uh, texts and traditions in India. So I'm really excited to have you here. Thank you so much for making the time. And I've got a lot of questions and things to, um, to discuss with you today. Um, but just to kind of kick things off, I was just thinking in, in prepping for this a little bit. I'm not sure if you remember, but we first met at your dissertation defense. Mm. 
<laughs> on the third floor of Bow Street in the South Asian Studies Department. I do recall. And I think I must have been in the first or maybe second year of the PhD program. And I remember just sort of watching in awe at this person who was at the culmination, the apex of this entire PhD project and all of this learning and just gave such a stellar presentation uh, and highly entertaining dissertation defense on Ohm. And well, I thought, <laughs> yeah, and I thought, man, if I can do that one day for yoga, uh, that would be that would be pretty pretty cool. I know it. One little did I know, since it did feel like a culmination, that it was just a plateau, and that this kind of scholarship, just the mountain of scholarship, just keeps on going up. You keep on trying to ascend, and you know, get new insights. Yeah, and I want to talk about you know the work that you're doing now and the book project that sort of the spin-off from the dissertation and yes. we'll get to all of that. But before we kind of get more into your research and your work, I want to talk to you a little bit about your background because I think you have a pretty unique background for a Sanskritist and Indologist, including a former life as a rock and roll musician. So tell us a little bit about your story, your background and how you got into Indology and the study of Ohm. Yeah, gladly. Well, I, first, I just want to say that it is so great to be able to kick off an enterprise like a podcast, for example, with Ohm, because it's obviously associated with auspicious beginnings, especially in the medium of sound. So it's really nice to be able to share some of my research around that with that in mind. And if I'm thinking about my own beginnings, gosh, where to start? I mean, I've just always loved music. I was basically a rock and roll fan and fanatic my whole life long, always played in bands, always wanted to be a rock star. And I would pretty much say that without blushing, you know, even as a teenager. And so there was that side of my passions and interests. And then there was also the kind of more intellectual, nerdy school side of it, right? Where I was also really good at ancient languages. I studied Latin and Greek in high school. And then in college, I added Sanskrit. And as you know, Latin, Greek, and Sanskrit are all members of the Indo-European language family. And so I studied all three of them together with an eye towards understanding their shared poetics, right? Like how the kind of sounds and formulas and rhythms and imagery and stories might've been drawing from common sources and mutually illuminate each other. And, and where, where was that at? Where'd you go to? Oh, so that was, that was at Harvard. Uh, so I was a, showed up as a freshman already really good at Latin and Greek. Uh, and I say that with total nerdy pride. <laughs> I had a lot of years under my belt. And so it was a, I couldn't wait to add Sanskrit to that mix, but it was always from this kind of armchair philological perspective, right? Very text focused. And the other part of my life, I was playing in bands and, you know, being in Cambridge as I was in the, in the mid to late nineties, there was like a great indie rock scene and there were a lot of bars and nightclubs. And so I had this other side of myself that was like the like live side, like no texts, no books, just guitars, microphones, dancing, hanging out. And I think that I was really motivated 
even uh, through my 20s as I was playing in bands and kind of working, you know, crappy jobs just to support my, you know, music career as I was trying to get it going, I was always kind of just wondering about that kind of more bookish side of myself and wondering if I could somehow integrate those two parts, right? And, and so when I decided to go back to grad school, I really wanted to pick a project that was focused on text and played to my strengths in ancient languages. And uh, I, you know, I like holding a dictionary. I like spending hours, you know, pouring over a passage. I wanted to keep that going, but then I wanted to have a project that would also have a dimension that involved performance, music, and sound. And even if it meant that I wasn't the performer, I could still perhaps use my own experience as a way to encounter performance traditions by other people and in other cultures. So that's what led me to kind of propose a grad school project and ultimately a PhD that focused on the pretty much the oldest attested Indian performance traditions, which are ritual, right? They're Vedic ritual. And we can talk more about the Vedas and that whole, you know, wild world of Vedic stuff. But for me, that was really, it was a, it was a breakthrough, you know, because it meant that I, I didn't have to be, have, be kind of like have this, you know, superhero complex where I could like play in bands by night and be in the library by day. All of a sudden I felt like I could kind of fuse my interests and draw on all my talents and all my passions and bring them together in the study of Veda basically and chanting, recitation, sound, and mantra. So that became my primary focus all through grad school and the theme of my dissertation and now book project. I mean, I basically have, ne have never let up for the, it's been more than a decade now. I've been doing nothing but thinking about mantra and OM <laughs> day to day, week to week, month to month and year to year. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I, I think it's so interesting to hear the story of the scholar and the, the decisions, the experiences that have shaped the research interests. And yeah. it makes so much sense in your case, how your background in music, music, in performance, how that led you to study sound and mantra mm -hmm. and, you know, in the Vedic traditions. But how, so how did you get then from that you know, to Harvard, to the PhD, but how did you settle on the topic of OM for your dissertation within the broad sort of soundscape of Vedic traditions? Um, can you say a little bit about why you thought that that would be a great topic and how that sustained you, you know, for all of these years now, studying OM for all of these years? Um, I, I, to me, it still kind of blows my mind that nobody had really done this critical investigation on mm -hmm. OM prior and that it, it was still kind of up for grabs as a dissertation topic. Yeah, that's a fair point, right? Because there's an aspect of scholarship in academia that is kind of choosing a project that kind of has legs and is kind of a bit sexy and intriguing. And it's not always clear, especially in the stress of grad school, what's going to be kind of a a fulfilling, rigorous, real project, but then that can also do double duty as a project that people want to hear about, right? And that other people haven't already studied to death, right? As is often the case, especially with uh, ancient cultures, you know, where there's a kind of 
fairly, you know, at least in the case of the Veda, fixed canon that scholars have been pouring over for more than two centuries in the West and for many millennia in India, right? So, yeah, so it came about kind of organically and naturally. I kind of gave into the process and, you know, maybe any listeners who are in grad school or thinking about it can take solace from that, that even though my project now is very focused and very directed and has this very strong theme, it took, you know, I kind of had to, it took a lot of zigs and zags to get there. And so here's how it worked for me. The Vedas, you know, there are four Vedas. Uh, three of those are used in this very elite ritual tradition called the Soma Sacrifice. And those three are the Rig Veda, Yajur Veda, and Sama Veda. And all three of those are, correspond to kind of different registers of chanting and performance. The Rig Veda is like chanting metrical poetry. The Yajur Veda is chanting these ritual formulae that are more or less in prose, although they have a little bit of a rhythm to them. And then Sama Veda is pretty much exclusively melodic. And although it has lyrics, it also has a lot of little word fragments and syllables that don't have any obvious semantic meaning, right? So the kind of academic word for that is that they're non-lexical syllables. And so with my interest in music and sound and even pop music, frankly, where there's like la la la, a lot of kind of singing uh, and chanting of syllables that might not have a semantic meaning, but nevertheless have a lot of kind of gravity and importance and in some ways are the core of the of the performance i was really attracted to samaveda it's pretty much the oldest uh, oldest indian musical tradition that we know about and it's unclaimed real estate in the field of indology as you probably know i mean there's just very few people who have devoted their careers to studying samaveda so i was also attracted to that it seemed like wow this might be you know, if I was coming from studying Greek and Latin, whereas Homer and Virgil and people have written thousands upon thousands of papers, the idea of confronting this kind of ancient musical chanting tradition that basically no one had studied, only a few people, was really intriguing. And so that's how I kind of got the project going. Do you have any sense of why that is? Why has the Sama Veda been so neglected by scholars? Great question. I think a lot of it comes down to the precisely the things that attracted me, that it only makes sense as performance and as chanting. It's non-lexical. It's not. So if you study the Rig Veda, you can spend your entire career, many lifetimes, debating about what the words say and what they mean, right? What their semantic meaning is. What does this obscure poetry say? What is, what is it trying to convey? What myth are they talking about, right? Same goes for other Vedic traditions. But when it comes to Sama Veda, if the main chant and the main kind of medium is someone going ha boo ha boo ha boo you know these non-lexical syllables strung together it's not immediately obvious how a scholar would approach those right or what you'd say about them and be, and and it, in that respect it kind of goes against the grain of i think a scholarly bias in favor of text in favor of reading in favor of doctrine, semantics, things you can explain and talk about. With Samaveda, we're confronted with an ancient performance tradition that was textualized, but it's just these strings of meaningless syllables, right? And so I think that 
insulated in some ways from people's inquiry. And also because the earlier generations of Orientalists and Indologists were less involved with Indian traditions now and living Vedic traditions now. So they didn't have an awareness of how, what Samaveda would sound like in performance. And lucky for me, there'd been some pioneering scholarship. Fritz Stahl comes to mind where, you know, Stahl went all around India in the 1950s on a motorbike with a reel to reel tape recorder bungeed to the back and he recorded people chanting the Vedas, including Samaveda. So for me as a grad student, I really benefited from that pioneering scholarship and I could hear it. I could listen to it and I could ask questions about it that didn't necessarily have to do with what does that word mean in a semantic way. I could ask more of a question like, what is the, the aesthetics of this? What is this performance doing? What does it mean in a symbolic way? Right. And so I think those factors kind of, coalesced and made it so that Samaveda had basically been untouched except by a few pioneering scholars. I mentioned Fritz Stahl, the scholar uh, Willem Kalland, who was, you know, only worked on text, but was really good at uh, ritual studies is another that comes to mind. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think one of the interesting things about your work methodologically is how you combine philology and this nitty gritty textual study of the Vedas of the Vedic corpus with fieldwork and ethnography in contemporary India and studying performance and ritual traditions. So I'd love to hear a little bit about some of the fieldwork that you've done. I believe you did a full year of dissertation fieldwork in Kerala among the Nambudri Brahmin community. Yeah. What, what is unique about this particular Vedic tradition? And how did these experiences during your field work, how did this inform um, your broader work? Yeah. Yeah, the Nambudri community is amazing and great people, incredibly rich cultural traditions and really worthy of study. And again, I'll, I'll mention Stahl. His name will probably come up a lot in this conversation because he really was a kind of uh, trailblazer. One of the communities that Stahl was most impressed by when he was doing field recordings in the 50s and 60s and then in the 70s was the Nambudri Brahmin community. And they, he thought, and I would tend to agree, that they had a particularly archaic style of Vedic chanting and a particularly uh, rich and well-preserved oral and ritual tradition, right, of knowledge of the texts and the mantras as oral traditions, and then knowledge of how to use them in ritual performance. And so he spent decades of his career studying the tradition and trying to bring it to the attention of scholars worldwide. And to a large extent, he succeeded. But one of the things that's uh, special about the Nambudris has to do with the region of India that is their stronghold, and that's the southern state of Kerala. So if you kind of imagine the Indian subcontinent, on the west coast, we have Kerala state, and it's kind of going along the, uh, the beaches of the Arabian Sea on the on western side. And then on the eastern side, it's pretty narrow. You have the, the western Ghats, 
these very forbidding mountains that separate it from Tamil Nadu. And Nambudri Brahmins settled there more than a thousand years ago under the patronage of various kind of local rulers and set up their feudal estates, right? Where they were kind of, uh, they, they were granted these large estates for farming, especially rice paddy and so forth. And have pretty much been there ever since. And well up into the early part of the 20th century, they had very limited contact with the kind of modernizing uh, urban cultures of India, right? And South Asia and the rest of the world. And because of that, they were very, uh, very con maintained this kind of very conservative Brahminical identity, you know, and they were able to continue to transmit Vedic traditions in their in their own homes, usually from father to son or from uncle to nephew, right? A Vedic transmission as an oral tradition goes down the male line. And so what the result is that they have these extremely unusual Vedic traditions when you compare them to other Vedic traditions across India where there might have been a lot more kind of outside influence and kind of fluidity and you know, kind of hybridity, right? And so Nambudri's installs estimation and in my estimation now after some experience with them have this amazingly strong community. And there's, I should say, Seth, that there's a, a, a dark side to that, right? One of the reasons that the Nambudri's were able to kind of have this leisure time to maintain and cultivate Vedic transmission is that they were at the top as Brahmins of a highly kind of caste-based social hierarchy, right? And so they weren't, they weren't farming the rice necessarily, right? They were living off the produce of indentured uh, farmers and kind of tenant farmers, right? And this went on for thousands of years. And in, in terms of social hierarchy and history of the caste system, Nambudris are often mentioned in negative terms for being highly casteist, as they would say in India, kind of refusing to have, be, really trying to live to the letter, these Brahminical laws about who you can touch, who you can't touch, who you can eat with, who you can't eat with. So I'm, I'm always attentive to this paradox in my work, which is the reason Vedic traditions are so well preserved in Kerala, or I should say one of the major reasons is because of the inequities of the caste system and the conservatism of that region. Yeah, that's really important to keep <clears throat> kind of that shadow side in mind, lest we glorify and overly romanticize a tradition like the Nambudris uh, as just this kind of lineage holders of this golden age yeah you know vedic society and so forth that's that's really important even just Ab absolutely and and to their credit i mean some nambudris uh ems nambudri pod who was a, uh, became a politician there was a movement among nambudris to uh renounce vedic learning and uh set up a more kind of equitable society right and so the a lot of the Nambudris were very active actually in, in the kind of resurgence of, Sarah, of Kerala as this uh, amazing state in the Indian stage with great public health, great literacy and all that kind of thing. So it's, it's, a, it's a highly kind of complicated story. 
But for me, at least as a, as a scholar interested in Vedic texts, it presented this fascinating opportunity. A lot of the texts that I studied as texts, right, printed editions, the Nambudri still kept as oral traditions. They didn't need to take a text off their bookshelf to tell me about it. They could literally go through their minds like a, a filing system or a computer and talk about different mantras or different melodies, different chants off the top of their head. And they still maintained, although it, it has been faltering in the last couple decades in the face of globalization, they still maintained basically continuous lines of Vedic transmission in the three Vedas I mentioned, Rig Veda, Yajur Veda, and Samaveda. And Samaveda has always been the least represented among in kind of the census of Vedic population. So it's a vanishingly small tradition, but it was still going on in Kerala. So for me, with this interest in Samaveda and sound and chanting, to be on the ground there and to be interacting with exponents of this tradition was incredible. And it let it opened up, you know, back to kind of my grad school story and my story as a scholar, it opened up the kind of in-person, live part of myself. So all these things I'd been thinking about in terms of texts and in terms of concordances and dictionaries, I could now think about in terms of microphones and recorders and being in the presence of these sounds and these rituals and seeing how they fit into modern Kerala society and how they constituted not just Vedic traditions, but Hindu traditions, right? Because Nambudri Brahmins identify as Hindu, so for them, by and large, their Vedic practices are also Hindu practices, and their Vedic identity is also part of their Hindu identity. And so I got there on a Fulbright, like so many grad students do, right, trying to kind of fund their dissertation research, with not a lot of specific ideas about the actual arguments or, you know, lines of research I would pursue, but I just knew that the people I needed to be around, the ritual traditions I needed to be around in the modern day were there, right? And so I, you know, at the time my, uh, my daughter was seven, my son was two, we moved to Kerala, me and my wife and the two kids, and we tried to kind of, you know, eke out a somewhat comfortable family existence in the Nambudri heartland, which is a very rural, part of Kerala, away from the beaches, away from the tourism that so many people may have experienced if they've taken a trip to Kerala to go to the beaches like Varkala or to go to the backwaters. Nambudris live in around Trishur and between Trishur and Palakkad, so it's a very hot, very, you know, there's a few small cities, but it's a pretty uh, tough place to show up as an outsider. And so yeah, we so, just so did the how, best we could. How was, how was your family? How, how, how were you and your family received by this very conservative, orthodox, if you will, Brahminical community. How were you received as a scholar, as an outsider to this tradition coming in to study their, their, their rituals, their performance, asking them you know, sets of questions? Yeah, that, that was complicated as well, because if we contrast it with earlier generations of scholars like Stahl, who had a very hard time gaining access to Nambudris, by the time I got there, there was a little bit more of a sense among Nambudris that there was a kind of mutual benefit to cooperating with Indian scholars and Western scholars, and there had been some tradition of doing that. So it wasn't impossible by any means. And I was lucky too that I had a mentor, uh, a fellow named T.P. Mahadevan, 
who's a Tamil Brahmin, but born and raised in Kerala. And he was so generous to me and kind of invited me on a trip that he was taking in the summer and kind of introduced me to all the right people, right? So I had this great entree thanks to uh, TP and thanks to the, you know, foundations laid by other scholars. But even so, it was, it was something to negotiate, right? The first place it came up and, and it really affected my family was where do we live? Because this is a part of Kerala where, you know, there might be a hotel or a resort, but you don't have enough money to, to you know, stay there for, for a year, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't really rent a, a house very easily because they tend to be kind of multi-generational households and compounds that are filled up. And in many such, you know, fieldwork situations, the researcher might depend on his or her interlocutors to kind of host them. And that was one place where I really ran up against this kind of social aloofness of Nambudris. The Nambudris were not necessarily opening their doors to me, right? To, as a, as a, like a permanent guest, you know, and I, I can't blame them, right? Because <laughs> here I am, you know, a, a scholar uh, fresh off the plane with my wife and two kids. And, uh, and so that presented an immediate problem. Eventually, I was lucky enough to uh, be hosted by a group, a community of Chakyars who are uh, Kudiyatam temple actors, but that's a whole other story. But, uh, but so that was one of the experiences I had, just the kind of encounters I had. And then, but once we kind of dug in and people got to know us, it was good. And I had, I was able to go watch Samavedic teaching and transmission from teacher to student, right? This is conducted face to face, uh, often, you know, sitting down kind of in lotus position and the teacher chants, the student imitates and it goes back and forth like this. And so I was able to have, you know, I had my kind of interlocutors and friends and people who were sharing their traditions with me and I was making a lot of progress. And all I was really doing was just recording constantly and just, just asking you know, maybe somewhat annoying questions like, well, what's that about? You know, what, why are you doing that? And why are you doing this? And just trying to understand the dynamics of their tradition as it's lived today in Kerala, but always with this kind of historical framework in my mind of like, well, how does this, what I'm seeing now in front of me relate to these texts that I study and these, and these right. And that bring that kind of, brings me back to the whole question of Om and how this topic presented itself to me. The more I listened to and recorded Samavedic traditions, the more interested I got in these non-lexical syllables called stobha. Stobha comes from the verb root stub, which means to praise. And it's basically a syllable of praise. So it's a non-semantic syllable that is inserted into Samavedic melodies to give them kind of an extra power or efficacy and to make the praise that they're offering to gods, right? Which is the purpose, one purpose of this, of this chanting tradition, that much more potent. And, you know, as I was spending these hours and hours listening to this chanting, listening to these stobhas, you have stobhas like ha, bu, e, a, a, o, va, you know, all these different, resonant sounds, I, I came back to something I had noticed early in grad school, which is that Om in that tradition is also a stobha, right? So it just shows up in these chants, just dropped in, in the middle, right? Sometimes repeated. 
and that that was the kind of germ of my dissertation project and now this book project right of of this this kind of reflection that some Vedic traditions coming from such a long time ago I mean the probably around a thousand BC that's our best guess of when the the chants in their current form were compiled and composed they offer us a window into the ritual tradition and the world of mantra that where om is present but has not yet become elevated and individuated individuated as a sacred syllable and that germ really started to grow during my time in india and i started to wonder hey could i use this experience of kind of understanding samaveda from the inside and understanding it as a sound tradition and a chanting tradition could i use that to do historical and text critical research about the construction of om as a sacred syllable yeah, that's great. And I, I just want to mention too, for listeners who might not know, um, in addition to being a musician and a Sanskritist, Finn is also a documentary filmmaker. And you had all this equipment with you in Kerala. And while you were doing these interviews, you, you recorded a lot of footage of mm. the pedagogy, the, the transmission of um, Nambudri Brahminical practices. And uh, we'll, we'll put the links to these in the show notes, but film has a really great series of films that kind of just takes you right into these uh, communities into their, their Vedic practices. And in particular, I've really appreciated the short film you did called Mantras to the Max, mm. which I think highlights a lot of what you're, you're, you're kind of painting for us here. And um, I, I've used that documentary i think i've told you i've used that many many times in teaching contexts because it's just right. such a great way to kind of bring these these texts these ideas these practices to life in a very tangible way and to show how they're in some ways maintaining tradition but also mm. adapting and innovating with new technologies and new contexts today i wonder if you could say a little bit about about that film in particular, maybe the Agni Chayana ritual and the significance of that. Absolutely. Yeah, because so far what we've been talking about has, has been about the kind of chanting and transmission of mantras in people's homes and in kind of teaching context. But there's also this kind of semi-public performance side, right? In ritual, why are they chanting these mantras? Well, so they can be used on important ritual occasions. So one such ritual occasion locally is known as Agni, right? The Vedic god of fire. But in our texts and in a more, it's more elaborate name is known as Agni, the Agni Chayana, the piling of a fire altar in honor of Agni, right? The piling of this, of Agni, the kind of construction of this god through ritual means. And this was the ritual that had attracted Stahl's attention because it was the most elaborate or among the most elaborate Vedic sacrifices and one of two Soma sacrifices that Nambudri still perform. It's 12 days long, it goes 24 hours a day, hence the title of my film trying to document that, Mantras to the Max, because by the end of that I felt truly maxed out. <laughs> and it takes place seasonally in 
towards the kind of climax of the summer in South India, which is March and April. So at the hottest and driest time of year and leaving aside some of the kind of aims of that ritual in Vedic terms that we find in the texts, in terms of local folklore, right? And, and the practitioners also subscribe to this, the belief about this ritual is that over a course of 12 days, you know, thousands of offerings of ghee, milk, grains into these sacrificial fires, thousands of mantras chanted in praise of Agni and other gods. Over the course of these 12 days, it will yield this amazing benefit, which is that it will rain, right? So this scorching hot, dry summer will finally come to an end, the skies will open up, and this kind of, you know, healing, nourishing rain will fall, right? Inaugurating a, you know, a, a bountiful harvest season. So that's the folk belief about the ritual, and it's very much present when you're there. And so in that film, it's only, I think, six minutes long, but I tried to take, I was standing on the sidelines for hours and hours recording constantly, and I tried to just convey a sense of what it was like to be there, both for the practitioners and what they were doing on the inside of the sacrifice amidst these altars, which is interesting for scholarly reasons because it gives us a kind of a window into how some of these Vedic rituals are actually performed, right, that we read about in texts. But then I also was really keen to see how it, that ritual tradition was interfacing with the public and with Kerala society. And there were, you know, unlike say 50 years ago or hundred years ago when Nambudris were much more private and isolated, now they're kind of using the sacrifice as a venue to interact with the public, other Hindus, right? Who might not share, might not be Brahmins like they are, but also Jains, Muslims, yogis of all different descriptions. It be has become this kind of Hindu festival-like event, right? Almost like a pilgrimage destination to go see this Agni Chayana ritual. And so from the point of view, not so much of Indology, but of kind of religious studies and anthropology, this was another really fascinating perspective for me to be on the sidelines of this ritual and to know a lot about what was going on inside but then also to be learning because I was new to this, right? And just in terms of seeing it and hearing it to kind of learning what it meant in the larger fabric of society. And so that's what that film tries to get across. And one of the things I focused on was the use of new technology and specifically microphones and speakers to amplify the chanting of the mantras. And, and, what the kind of argument that started to form in my mind as I spent a lot more time with that footage and thinking about it was, um, was this idea that if you speak, the louder you speak, the more people can hear you. Right. And so if you have this mantra culture that you, that has, that it has value, right. And kind of cultural importance and you want to share that, with others, uh, microphones and amplifiers are an amazing way to kind of amplify not only your voice, but your identity. So I became very interested in how sound and mantra correlates with identity formation and the way Nambudris thought of themselves and interacted with their neighbors. Well, very fitting for 
a podcast discussion. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> digital channel of sonic discussions here. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Finn. I want to um, switch gears a little bit, although this this is just totally a continuation of what we're talking about here. But I want to shift to Ohm a bit more fully here. Let's do it. And so, you know, for better or worse, you've really become the Ohm guy, or maybe we can call you Dr. Ohm. <laughs> and I know you're now busy uh, writing and turning your dissertation into a full-length monograph. Uh, I believe the first ever such monograph on the subject of Ohm. So I know you're, you're really right in the thick of this. You've been working on this for who knows how many years now. Mm. And... Uh, I want to just ask you the most basic question here to be sure, which is what is Ohm and <laughs> you know, where does, where does this thing emerge from? What is it? Yeah. So in talk, I mentioned a, a little bit about, about Samaveda, how Ohm has this, its beginnings as a liturgical syllable, right? It's not necessarily the supreme syllable in these early, early Samavedic texts is just one among many hundreds and thousands of stobas, of syllables of praise. And so at first, if we, if we kind of try to reconstruct the historical sequence, it's, it's just a sound that is chanted in praise of gods in the context of Vedic ritual. And then over time, certain groups of Brahmins who were still, the Veda, the Veda canon and corpus was still in the process of being formed. And so certain groups had a specialization in certain aspects and several groups took a particular interest in Om, right? And so, you know, all the kind of nitty gritty of this is in my uh, dissertation and will be in the book, but to make a long story short, groups of Brahmins with a specialty in Samaveda became particularly attracted and interested in this idea of a transcendent sacred syllable that could lead to immortality, that could encompass Brahman, the all-encompassing uh, absolute, right? The kind of cosmic reality. And they not only did they pick up on that idea of a sacred syllable, but they attached it to a particular sound. And it makes sense if we kind of look back on it, that they would choose a sound from their corpus of mantras, right? And maybe they would choose a, not a word, which already had this kind of raft of associations and semantics, but something that transcends language, right? Just a, just a, a pure sound, om. And, and that group was called the Jaimaniyas and, you know, all the, I could go down a rabbit hole of uh, why Jaimaniya Samaveda uh, took a particular interest in Om and the contributions they made to its history. But leaving that aside, I will say that the other side of Om in ritual is that it seems to have been a syllable that showed up in other Vedas and in other mantras, not just Samavedic ones, right? So in some contexts, for example, in Yajurvedic formulas, Om is a way to say yes in ritual. So if one priest will, there'll be the scripted dialogue where one priest says, hey, we'd like to make this offering. And the other priest says, Om Pracharita, Om, go ahead, right? Om, proceed. And, and so, and that's led to arguments like 
the one put forth by Asko Parpala, that the origins and primary meaning of Om is yes, right? And he has this idea that it's related to the, another way to say yes in Sanskrit, Am, right? And, and so that's another side of Om's history that we have to contend with. But in taking kind of a broad view of Vedic ritual and the various contributions of these smaller lineages to the history of Om, more and more I started to think about Om not as a single fixed term or monolith, right, in these early days, but more as a kind of an outcome of a recitation, right, an outcome of performance. And it started to make less sense to me to try to explain it in terms of etymology, right? To say, oh, I know what the original form of this is, and I'm going to tell you the, the, you know, the verb root it comes from, and that's going to, and I'm going to fix it that way. Instead, I started to see OM as this process of cultural construction, this kind of synthetic bringing together of different insights and a kind of mutual agreement to fix all these doctrines and all these practices around a certain sound and to call that sound OM. And, you know, one of the discoveries I made in my dissertation was that if you take Vedic ritual texts and reconstruct them, Om is added to many mantras. So if you're just looking at a, let's say you're reading a printed Vedic text, you might be looking at the Rig Veda, for example, and Om doesn't appear anywhere in the oldest Vedic text, the Rig Veda. But when the Rig Veda is chanted in performance, Om is added at the end of mantras to give it a kind of extra flourish or resonance. Mm -hmm. So it, it kind of dawned on me, and in this respect, having access to a living tradition was important. It dawned on me that even if the, that are the texts as we have them don't, necess don't necessarily tell the whole story, right? You have to think about the performance tradition and you have to think about reconstructing ancient performance in order to really understand Om and to put yourself in the shoes of ancient practitioners. And basically what, what I found is that when you do that kind of laborious reconstruction of chanting, Om is sounded out hundreds and maybe even thousands of times in the course of a single Soma sacrifice like the Agni Chayana. And so that gave a new resonance for me to let, think of one of those kind of Upanishadic aphorisms like you find in the Chandogya Upanishad, these late Vedic texts that are very mystical and about um, the karma and rebirth and the self, right? And are generally regarded as kind of moving away from ritual. And so in, in the Chandogya Upanishad, there's, a, there's a, a line that goes something to the effect of this whole world is Om. And people have generally taken that in a kind of, you know, philosophical or, from a, or cosmic way, right? And it makes sense to do that. But I started to think about a different world. I started to think about the world of sacrifice and how it might seem for an ancient practitioner to hear this sound that comes about in the course of recitation ringing out constantly, right? And so it gave it a, a new kind of uh, sonic resonance and performative resonance to some of that Vedic philosophy. This is the title of the dissertation, isn't it? This whole world of home. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and the book. And, you know, and back to, that, back to that issue I mentioned before, you're always trying to think about your work and in a way that will invite people to take an interest in it. And so when I, when I 
first read that line of the Chandogya Upanishad, it was like a light bulb went off. I was like, oh, this is the hook. Like, I, mm-hmm. this is, I love this. And I also, frankly, like the idea of trying to help the tradition speak for itself to some degree, right? Incorporating a Vedic statement as the kind of tagline for my work, right? So I could, uh, I don't know, kind of make that front and center. Mm-hmm. And so Finn recently taught a course online for yogic studies called The Story of Om, Sacred Sound, and the Vedic Roots of Yoga. And this this was just a fantastic course. Um, the students of yogic studies absolutely loved this. And for myself, it was an incredible experience to get to learn about all of these things, which, which really are outside of my wheelhouse, these early Vedic texts and materials. Mm-hmm. I have to say one of the biggest aha moments or surprises for me was at the end of your first lecture in module one, where you're talking about and you're thinking about origins of Om, And you suggested this uh, theory, a possible proto-Ohm mm. sound that might even uh, pre-anticipate what, what would become Om, mm. And this passage from the Rig Veda that scholars sometimes refer to as the riddle hymn. And this passage where a cow lows. Mm-hmm. You might telling us a little bit about the riddle hymn or, or what is the relationship between the sound that a cow makes and perhaps some sort of a, a connection or um, an anticipation of what would become the sound ohm. Yeah. I mean, you know, from the, from where we sit now, if I say sacred syllable and you know something about yoga or Hinduism or, you know, Asian spirituality, most people would react with the first thing that will come to their mind is Om, right? Sacred syllable and Om have almost become synonymous. But if we look at the Rig Veda, it's clear where Om does not appear at all, right? In this text anywhere. It's clear that the idea of a sacred syllable is born before a kind of specific articulation of that syllable is documented, right? And so the idea of a sacred syllable is represented in various hymns, including the riddle hymn, by the Sanskrit term akshara. Now the verb root akshara, sorry, the, the word akshara comes from the verb kshadati, which means to flow. And in Sanskrit, if you add an a sound to a word, it negates it. And so akshara means not flowing, but in the sense of not flowing out, not exhausting itself, right? So akshara is often translated as imperishable, kind of infinite, right? Just continually flowing, never never reaching its, its limit. And so the idea of a sacred syllable is kind of intertwined with this fascinating set of speculations that are most clearly articulated in the riddle hymn itself. And that is a poet. In this case, it's uh, attributed to one of the most famous Rig Vedic, Vedic poets, uh, Dirgatamas, which means long darkness. Later traditions regard him as blind, which is interesting to me for a, a hymn in which sound is so important. And Dirgatamas in this poem is speculating on this akshara, 
right? This imperishable syllable that he says is the source of all ritual speech, right? It's, and not only that, in the worldview of Vedic poets, ritual speech is this incredibly potent force that actually creates the cosmos to begin with. Right. So he's kind of presenting the Akshara in this very riddling or enigmatic way as the kind of heart of the cosmos, the heart of the sacrificial tradition. Right. And but he never said he never comes out and says in the hymn, well, this is what the Akshara is. But he does give us a lot of interesting imagery and mythology to make some guesses. And one of the things he connects it to is this idea of ritual speech. The word for ritual speech in the, from the Rig Veda forward is vach, sometimes uh, pronounced vak, depending on the context. And that's cognate with the Latin word vox for voice or um, other words for voice like voix in uh, French in Indo-European languages. And ritual speech is also imagined as a goddess, right? And not just any goddess, but a goddess in the form of a cosmic cow, which is sometimes, you know, maybe hard for people who are not so conversant with Hindu traditions to even get their head around. But Dirga Thomas talks about the goddess Vach, this heavenly cow, and talks about her as kind of the matrix of his poetry, right, which, which are become the mantras of ritual and the matrix of sacrifice and the origins of these really important traditions. And he imagines her in the highest heavens and she's a fem- she's a goddess, right? So she's uh, a woman and she happens to be lactating. And so he imagines her as a dairy cow with her udders bursting with milk and this, and he talks about this akshara, this cosmic syllable that's just constantly flowing in this stream of milk that creates the universe, the mantras, and the sacrifice. And so many scholars since then, including uh, Vedic thinkers in the Middle Vedic period, started to look at the riddle of him and say, well, hey, he's talking about this cosmic syllable, right? And it, you know, it comes and he associates it with the sound that the goddess speech makes, right? Maybe it's Om, right? That would be, it would make sense. I mean, Om is the supreme syllable of Hindu traditions. Maybe Dirgatamas, because this is the riddle hymn, he's just being enigmatic and maybe it's, maybe it's Om. And so uh, insiders and then also outside scholars, you know, for the last several thousand years have kind of operated on that assumption. But in really taking a close look at that hymn, I became interested in another sound that actually is clearly enunciated in the riddle hymn in some earlier verses. Again, with reference to this kind of cosmic lactating cow. And that's the sound that a cow makes in Vedic Sanskrit, which you'll, if you'll forgive my impression, I'll do right now. It goes something like this. Mm. and it's you can laugh <laughs> but it's the it's it's written in sanskrit uh, it has that an h that aspirated sound and then a very short i right so it's it's actually probably pronounced more like english hmm right or hmm like this kind of aspirated sound with with a with a nasal or labial at the end of the syllable 
Mm. And at the time I was going through this passage, my kids were still pretty young and I were spending, you know, we're going to a lot of those like farms, you know, when you go to those baby animal events in the spring. And, and I remember thinking, wow, that this, the sound of a cow lowing in this, uh, in this riddle hymn is actually a lot closer to real life than the way we say it in English, which is moo, right? To me, moo I mean, I guess move, it sounds okay, but that, that hmm sound, it really sounded like the, a bovine vocalization. And so in the hymn, Dirka Thomas talks about this cosmic cow and the sound she makes when her calf is brought near to nurse, right? And this is something that's been documented by people who study cows. Any farmer could tell you just from anecdotal experience that in the course of nursing, uh, both the mother cow and the calf vocalize. And so in the early Vedic poetic tradition, the way they represented this sound was, hmm. So I made the argument that rather than see this hymn as a cryptic allusion to Om, which is a sound that doesn't appear anywhere in it, wouldn't it make more sense to see the akshara, the idea of this imperishable syllable, as an allusion to a sound that's actually almost like an Easter egg in another part of the hymn, right? And, and so I, I've kind of offered my own analysis of, on that basis. But, but the, you know, getting away from the, out of the weeds here, the main point I wanted to make is that the idea of a sacred syllable, akshara, and the specific sound of that syllable, om is the one most people think of, are two separate things and that we need to disentangle them to think about them historically. And so that's why this idea of hum is important because I use it to argue that the idea of a sacred syllable comes first and it over the uh, course of the kind of unfolding of Vedic tradition and the development of classical Hinduism, that idea can be attached to different syllables in different contexts, right? And even though om became the most famous representative of that, it is has not been the only one that's absolutely fascinating um and i and i and i appreciate you separating the concept of sacred syllable and then om which is perhaps the most recognizable one now as the sort of life of om takes off and crystallizes or further develops within the brahminical traditions as you've shown you know, there's there's still this multiformity. We we get these different ohms and these mm. different expressions of ohm uh, in texts as well as in ritual performance. Yeah, and I think today everybody is familiar with ohm to some degree, whether that's through its uh, through its symbol, its visual expression, mm-hmm. or in a yoga context, you know, being chanted perhaps at the beginning or the end of a of a class. There's this really ubiquitous presence of Om, and yet there's still some really basic questions that arise out of the different ways that Om is sometimes taught or interpreted. Mm-hmm. I think one of them being, you know, just how do you spell it? How do you spell this sound? <laughs> yeah, let's get back to basics, right? O M, or right. as it's sometimes interpreted, is it the combination of the three sounds a, u, and Ma. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering, you know, how do you how do you kind of make sense of this multiformity of Om? What can you say about this this triple lettered Om? Yeah. Ma. Uh, and sometimes we'll hear that, you know, this is uh, 
understood as these three states of consciousness, waking, mm. dream, deep sleep. And then sometimes even the fourth is added, this Turiya beyond. Yes. Is that something that really developed in Vedanta and those philosophical traditions of uh, Upanishadic interpretation? Uh, or, yeah, what, what can you share with listeners about this, the multiformity of Om and this three-lettered Om? Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great question because you see it spelled in a lot of different ways, especially if you're looking at transliterations into, uh, you know, Roman script, right, or, or non-Indian scripts. And so the question arises, like you said, is it O-M? Is it O-M with an underdot, right? Or is it O-M with the Chandrabindu, right, over the, uh, the crescent and dot above it? Or is it A-U-M, right, using in English, or, you know, A, U, and Ma? And the answer to those, all those questions is yes. <laughs> it's all of those. <laughs> And, and, that, and, that, and that kind of gets at another kind of key aspect that you highlighted, this theme of multiformity. What happens when a tradition kind of consciously and over time constructs a symbol using a sound, right? The material, the sounds they're drawing on might be slightly different given different recita recitational contexts. And so for that, for example, that's what gives us, if OM is just chanted by itself and it ends like that, OM on your lips, it's represented in Vedic mantras as a ma, right? But if it's followed by other words, right? for example, uh, om bur bhuvasvar, right? The beginning of the Gayatri mantra, om earth, atmosphere, heaven, or a devotional mantra like om namo shivaya, right? In those cases, it's represented as a M with an underdot for reasons of Sunday, right? When you combine two different words in Sanskrit, the word the sound of the word following has an effect on the final sound of the initial word. Mm -hmm. And so circumstances like that produce this multiformity, a lot of slightly different Om sounds. Over time, Vedic exegetes started to think of them all as part of the same category, and they called that category Om. Right. And that's so that that's how the multiformity feeds into the gradual emergence of a monolithic sound and a monolithic symbol that we know today. But, yeah, this the division of Om into those three constituent phonemes, uh, U and Ma, is one of the oldest and most influential sonic analyses of the of the syllable. And it, it's really important. It first shows up in the Aitareya Brahmana, which is a prose text belonging to a Rig Vedic school of uh, performance and interpretation that most scholars date to around 800 BC right now, with the caveat that it's extremely hard to date uh, Vedic texts. So quite early, though. Quite early. And in that and there's a there's a great story in that text. It's about uh, Prajapati, the Lord of the Creatures, who's this kind of cosmic giant who embodies the sacrifice as a whole. And it talks about Prajapati undertaking tapas, right? The kind of heat of austerity and asceticism that we know so well from uh, yoga traditions, right? And Prajapati's tapas takes a very, I would say, Vedic shape right his tapas is chanting mantras 
and and so he through this chanting he creates the cosmos and everything in it right and the this analysis is one of the um, earliest examples and kind of windows into the amazing sophistication of uh, phonology and the science of phonetics in the Sanskrit tradition, right? Because it's the base, the, the core of this analysis is that this one sound, om, can be divided into three constituent phonemes, right? And you can hear this yourself when you're chanting it, if you just, if you kind of slow it down. And so you can imagine the utterance of om, if you say it, begins at the back of your throat with an uh, uh sound, a short uh, and then the, it continues across uh, the roof of your mouth uh, and your, your upper palate, and that's the ooh, ah, ooh, and then it finishes with this kind of resonance on your lips or in the nasal, right? So, ah, um, right, ah, um, om, om, right? So, so that phonological analysis uh, gives us a little window into the way these Vedic ritualists were thinking about mantra analytically, right? And thinking about them as sounds that could be further broken down into constituents. So in this story, Prajapati is chanting and he creates the three Vedas. And uh, from the three Vedas, he creates the three terms of the mantra, Bhur, Bhuva, Svad, earth, atmosphere, heaven. And that creates the entire cosmos, right? And then from Bhur, Bhuva, Svad, he creates these three Varnas or sounds. And those are and he calls them the three pure ones. And those are a, u, and ma. And then in his kind of final act of tapas, you know, just when he's getting so tired he can't take it anymore, he synthesizes a, u, and ma into a single sound, and that is om. So even though the way I just described it, we're breaking down om into a, u, and ma, in that early telling, it presents om as the culmination of this cosmogony, right? This creation of the cosmos that includes gods, Vedas, the levels of the universe, these three sounds, and then finally this essence of everything, and that is Om. So you can imagine with a story like that uh, how appealing and durable and influential it might become, right? This idea that a single syllable can carry all the authority, all the wisdom, all the transcendence of the Vedic corpus, which after all, I've never counted every syllable, but we could guesstimate that it's made up of millions of syllables. So that's a really appealing and useful idea. And we see it already in 800 BC. And then it continues to crop up in the Vedic corpus here and there, sometimes in unexpected ways. Later uh, in that same tradition, in a text called the Aitareya Aranyaka, some of the, the authors talk about sound again, and they say, well, wait a second, if Om can be divided into three constituent sounds, then how could it possibly be the supreme syllable? And they decide that it's not the sacred syllable. They say, the sacred syllable is uh, that very, that the, the, 
the first constituent of om is the sound uh written a in in english and and so this this line of thinking just continues and attracts new interpretations and participates in that dynamic of tradition and innovation that we talked about earlier until you finally get to a much later uh, post vedic upanishad called the mandukya upanishad which you were referring to when you were talking about the division of om into three constituent syllables that correspond to three states of consciousness and then this idea of a fourth right this transcendent fourth right so so there's even though probably a thousand years or more in fact elapsed between the aitareya brahmana the kind of art the first document of this interpretation and the mandukya you can see this continuity but the mandukya is composed in a very different milieu as you said it it's it's in conversation with Vedanta. It's in conversation with the nascent uh, classical yoga traditions. And so it, its innovations uh, reflect that. Mm. And how interesting that in the Chandogya Upanishad, Om emerges out of Prajapati's tapas. Mm. It's this burning asceticism and self-discipline and of this creative sonic act yes so maybe this can transition us a bit uh to thinking now about om and yoga and kind yeah. of a mantra sonic based yoga practice so you have a, a really lovely forthcoming chapter um i think it's for the is it the rutledge handbook of yoga and meditation that's right um, the, the chapter title is between sound and silence in early yoga meditation on om at the moment of death yes quick correction so that's actually a forthcoming journal article uh but the the rutledge chapter which deals with some of the same themes is called sound and yoga uh, okay so let's talk about this between sound and silence where does this title come from and what can you tell us about meditation on Om uh, in yoga at the moment of death? Yeah, this is a this is another interesting thing about sound and thinking about sound is that it need not always be audible to be powerful and important, and that in fact, as Vedic tradition develops and as Vedic thinkers begin to kind of travel inward and think about ways of interiorizing sacrifice and ritual, they also apply that idea to mantra and to sound. And so by the later Vedic, by the end of the, the in later Vedic texts, what we get is this emergence of this idea that the most powerful sounds, right, the most kind of efficacious ones in terms of uh, achieving the aims of ritual like uh, immortality are sounds that are quieter, right? Muttered under the breath, or maybe even silent, even meditated on, right? And so Om becomes part of this discourse. And so I was kind of thinking about this kind of interplay between sound and silence and the way Om kind of goes back and forth between those domains. And in particular, I was interested in some scholarship on early yoga that posits that yoga as it's kind of attested in the Sanskrit epics like the Mahabharata is kind of foundationally a technique for dying, right? A scholar named Peter Schreiner 
came up with with this idea and namely that that the yogi will be training right the whole reason for doing this yoga is that when the moment of death comes one will be able to kind of meditate and discipline oneself so that when you're in that kind of liminal state of crossing over right from one birth to another uh, you can make sure that instead of being reborn right you go to the world of the immortals, right? That you kind of merge with uh, Brahman, if you think of it in impersonal terms, or a great God, for example, like Krishna. And there's a really famous passage in the Bhagavad Gita where uh, Krishna is talking to Arjuna, the warrior, about this yogic technique of meditation at the moment of death. And he says, you just have to uh, turn your mind to me and meditate on Om, and you'll rise to the highest path. You'll kind of achieve this liberation as it's presented there. And I and that and I started to be very interested in that because no one to that point had really brought that passage into conversation with Vedic mantra culture and these kind of earlier iterations of using mantra to achieve liberation. And so I the the idea behind that article is is kind of tracing, uh, taking the Bhagavad Gita as a kind of a, a culmination or an end point, if you will, of this technique of using Om to, to kind of successfully navigate uh, the moment of death, or as Angelica Malinar uh, said, uh, using it um, in the art of dying. And I, I was wondering if maybe there were some Vedic roots to that that could give us a new perspective on some of these ideas in early yoga. And, and so I, I found those in Jaimaniya traditions of Samaveda, where there is a chant in the course of the Soma sacrifice, where the practitioner takes the normal lyrics of the chant and internalizes them and out loud only chants non-semantic syllables. And in the case of this chant, he chants, Ova, 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 Humba, Ova. And the text says that in that way, the syllables build a stairway to heaven and that the singer can climb that stairway and enter the world of Brahman, this kind of world full of light, right? That's kind of uh, similar to uh, moksha, right? And clearly Led Zeppelin was really yes <laughs> definitely Jimmy Page is so into the Jaimini Upanishad Brahman <laughs> but but what, so what really caught my attention in thinking about Vedic traditions and mantra and how they might find kind of echoes in Bhagavad Gita is the technical terminology used in that passage right so when you're chanting these syllables out loud and ova are uh, interpreted by the text as om and vach the goddess speech so these sounds which are non-lexical monosyllables are given this kind of symbolic meaning as om on the one hand and vach the goddess of speech and when the uh, singer is chanting those out loud but at the same time thinking these other meaningful lyrics in his head, you can imagine how difficult that would be, right? It, it makes like, uh, you know, tapping your head and rubbing your stomach like kids do. <laughs> uh, 
seem easy. And the text talks about a, a specific way of yoke, the singer can yoke his mind to make this performance possible and so achieve uh, immortality, right? And the word used for that is cognate with our English word yoke, right? And I don't have to tell you, Seth, or your listeners or any yogic study students that that's also cognate with the word yoga. And in the Vedic texts, they don't use the word yoga, they use the word yukti. Mm. And so they think about this very complicated form of chanting that involves saying om out loud, but meditating on other mantras. They think of, they call that uh, the preparation to do that yukti, right? And so it's this, this, uh, this moment right before the chant begins where the singer kind of composes himself closes his eyes, tries to draw himself inward and yokes his mind to the mantra he's about to chant. So there's a yoking. And so I thought to myself, wow, this is really interesting. You have all the kind of uh, symbolic, some of the same symbolic trappings that you get in the Gita or, or the Katu Upanishad, for example, another core uh, late Vedic Upanishad for, for yoga. But you have it transposed into a, a very clearly Vedic ritual context. And not only that, you have this word, yukti, which is cognate, right, related to yoga. Could there be something there? And I remember when I first found it, that passage, I was like, aha, it's like a smoking gun. Like, I've just proved that yoga comes from this one passage, right? <laughs> And on reflection, as I worked with it, I started to realize, no, it's not really a smoking gun. This says more about the Vedic, the, the two are related, but it's not, um, this says more about the Vedic history of yoga. Yoga in the Veda, there's many streams of it, right? And they have different meanings and interpretations. And this is just one that's associated with Om and mantra culture. And so it's, you can definitely uh, link it to later texts, including uh, Patanjali's uh, Sutra on Om, the Katupanishad, as I mentioned, and the Bhagavad Gita. But it's not the only Vedic contribution to yoga. And mm -hmm. the fact that it uses the same word is significant, but not necessarily in the way I first thought. You don't, it's not that it somehow just immediately proves that this is the, you know, the key to yoga. <laughs> it's more that yoga and Vedic ritual and the, the verb root yuj to join, unite, or yoke are used almost generically as technical terms of ritual. All yoga means in Vedic ritual performance is getting ready for performance and applying yourself to performance. So it, it, you could even, uh, you could translate it as practice or preparation, right? And so it, it really changed the way I looked at the very early and contested history of yoga in ancient India. Well, that's fascinating. I think we might have to do a whole nother episode on just that topic. Yeah, agreed. Let's do it. <laughs> but uh, I do want to touch on what you were just talking about of Om in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Mm. Um, you kind of you mentioned that episode in the Bhagavad Gita where Krishna says to Arjuna, "Meditate on me, mm. this moment of death, and repeat the mant <clears throat> the mantra Om." Right. So there's this seems like there's this shift perhaps in the early centuries of the common era where om is now being uh, associated with or we might say grafted onto or, or mm. in a broader notion of divinity 
mm-hmm. or um, a more specific expression of a god like Krishna or Shiva. And of course, as I think you know, most of our listeners will know, we see Om in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, where Om is the the vachika, the sound, mm-hmm. sonic expression of Ishvara. Mm. Uh, so I'm wondering what you what you've learned about you know how do we get from Om as this a little bit more of an abstract kind of you know the entire world is Om, mm-hmm. to Krishna is Om, to Ishvara is Om, because mm. it seems connected to these broader religious and yogic currents that were taking place in India. Uh, I realize that's a pretty big question there, but. But do you do you note that there's this? I don't know what we, the word is. Maybe a sectarian or, or even devotional shift mm-hmm. in the usage and practice of Om. Yeah, it is. It is a big question, and I, I think the answer is is complicated. But but I, I think you're on to something. And and it has to do with the the what you see in Patanjali. You know where Om is expressing uh, Ishvara, right? It, it doesn't seem unlike what you see in the Gita, albeit with a different uh, deity or kind of, you know, abstract divinity, in that case, Krishna, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so I think there's a kind of natural continuity between Om as the all-encompassing expression of an impersonal God, like Brahman in Vedanta, to Om as the expression of a, a more personal deity like Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita, or a slightly uh, also impersonable but very different idea of the divine uh, as embodied by Ishvara in Patanjali, right? So that's why I, I see that as kind of definitely, there's definitely shifts along the way, but I see a kind of continuity with this idea that a single sound can represent in this all-encompassing way the kind of most uh, powerful and important uh, principle of a given tradition, right? Mm-hmm. And so that that's that's one piece of it, in very broad terms. The other part of it that that's fascinating and has only kind of really become clear to me as I've uh, been working through my book project, and this is with reference to the actual uh, sutra in Patanjali, right? And as as I don't need to tell you, I'm sure I don't need to tell your listeners that you know. Any one sutra could be the, you know, you could write uh, 10 volumes on <laughs> how to interpret it, how people have interpreted it, all that kind of thing. So I won't go into the weeds of Patanjali's sutra on Om, except to make a few remarks that I think uh, can help us uh, see it in context. Uh, one is, he nowhere does uh, Patanjali use the term Om. Mm, yes, right. I actually, I meant to ask you about this. So. Right. So the word he uses is, uh, and, and of course we're saying he with all the caveats about authorship in, in classical India, but is uh, pranava, right? Pranava is the kind of uh, an, another word for om that's not saying the sound, right? And, and that has a fairly wide currency, especially in yogic traditions. Uh, you know, originally Pranava in Vedic traditions is the addition of Om to a Rig Vedic verse, right, in, in recitation, right? So it's a technical term that has very little to do with the kind of uh, meditative japa or murmuring that Patanjali is talking about. So that's one point. 
right? That he, that the, the Yoga Sutra shows us that the idea of the pranava has left the kind of rarefied context of Vedic ritual, where it has this technical meaning, and now has a much more all-encompassing uh, synonym for Om, right? Mm-hmm. That's, and, and so then here's the other key point, that uh, it, the discussions among the commentators about that sutra and Patanjali link it to the practice of daily swadhyaya, right? Sometimes glossed as self-study, a form of kind of just daily mantra practice or chanting that the, uh, the yogi would have done, right, in following that system. Mm-hmm. And this, to me, uh, reveals or maybe highlights some of the Brahminical tr- contributions to the formation of the Patanjali Yoga Shastra, right? Uh, you know, it's... In, a, in kind of standard introductions, it's often described as kind of this, you know, hybrid text that's, you know, has, has some Buddhist influence, has influence from here, has influence from there, but uh, Brahmins are also credited with playing a role. And I think the, this is an example where we can see their role very clearly. And it's around Swadhyaya, because in Vedic terms, Swadhyaya is not self-study as maybe many uh, yoga practitioners today would understand it like reading a passage and thinking about its meaning and its relation to your life to kind of deepen your understanding of yourself. No, it's studying your own tradition of mantra. It's basically more like piano practicing in a kind of contemplative mode, like just like working, going through your daily work and chanting that you have to do. And there's a text called the Taitiri Aranyaka that codifies Swadhyaya for the first time. And it does so in ways that are amazingly uh, evocative and uh, anticipatory of Patanjali's uh, Om Sutra, right? It talks about uh, having, you know, sitting down with your legs crossed, kind of assuming this kind of standard meditation seat and uh, beginning the chanting with the Pranava or with Om. And then proceeding to all the other mantras you have to do that day, right? So let's say you're a Vedic student, it's 600 BC, you sit down, you chant Om, you chant the uh, Savitri or Gayatri mantra, and then you chant about an hour of material that your teacher told you to master that day, right? And this, in the passage of time, the, this gathers a significance and a meaning that beyond just doing homework, right? Just beyond just doing kind of self-study, it, it starts to be a kind of contemplative pursuit uh, in its own right. And so I think that the, the connections between the Vedic Swadhyaya or self-study, which begins with Om, and the uh, Patanjalian Sutra on Om, and indeed maybe the Patanjali's notion of Swadhyaya itself uh, need to be further explored because I think they're quite connected and they uh, show that the the hand of Brahmins, at least in the formation of those parts of the text, right? I, I see that sutra and I say, oh, this is Brahmin saying, trying to make a place for mantra and a place for Vedic orthodoxy within this uh, yoga darshana. Yeah, I think I think you're right on in that light of thinking. It makes a lot of sense to me. I think it also explains where, you know, Svadhyaya occurs. Uh, well, it occurs a couple places in the sutras, mm. in the second pada, as a part of Kriya Yoga, mm. along with 
tapas and ishvara pranidhana, but then as one of the five niyamas of ashtanga yoga. Mm. And what's always been interesting to me is, you know, in in the section on niyamas, Patanjali basically just lists the niyama and then says the result, the pala or the fruit of that practice, that cultivation. And for Svadhyaya, it's the union, the samprayoga, with one's ishta devata, mm. with one's chosen deity. Yeah. How is it that from self-study, if, if we took it that way, that <laughs> right. there's the union with the deity? Right. Great question. It right. makes more sense in the mantric context that mm-hmm. if Svadhyaya comprises japa of, of a mantra, and if that mantra is like the sonic expression of God, then mm-hmm. through immersing one's mind again and again and again, that there's then a merger with that, with that object. And I think if we read the Bhashya, the commentary, I think that makes it a little bit more clear too of what right. consists of there. And I think it's right along those lines. So True, true. That's, that's fascinating. So, so just to clarify then for Pranava, because this has always puzzled me. I think I've, I've asked you this many times right. before. But uh, so is pranava in, in the sutras, is it, is it in your mind, is it sort of a way of, of saying om without having to actually say it? Is it a way of, it's kind of a code word for om? Yeah, I, I guess so, though. I might hesitate. I'm not sure it, it's clear just from the from the evidence we have what the, the kind of ideology behind choosing the word pranava and not choosing om, right? Uh, even in kind of very mundane Vedic ritual context, just these kind of ritual texts that talk about how to do the chanting, pranava is just used synonymous with om. Sometimes it's used uh, in substitution for omkara, which means the om sound or the om utterance. So I don't think we necessarily need to assume that Patanjali is refraining from om, you know, for some you know specific reason, maybe because it's too sacred to say out loud, it may just be that pranava was a kind of uh, everyday term of art, right? For om, yeah, that makes sense as well. Yeah. Well, as we start to kind of wind things down here, um, I've got maybe a, a final question for you. Sure. And this is something that emerges again out of the story of om online course. And at the very end of the course, you sort of gesture towards something that I know you've been you've been thinking about recently uh, that you've termed embodied philology. Mm. So I wonder if you might share with us a little bit about what you what you think of as embodied philology, and is there a disembodied philology? <laughs> this, this is countering. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And of course, I can't take credit for the term. I think uh, that I associate that term uh, most kind of most prominently with a recent with the uh, Journal of Yoga Studies and an editorial um, by uh, Jacqueline Hargreaves and the other editors that kind of introduces it. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure about the, you know, who came up with that beautiful term to begin with, but I encountered it through that and through the, you know, work of Mark Singleton and James Mallinson and others in that orbit. But the reason it resonated so much with me is because it finally gave a name to something I've been doing all along, you know, (laughs) and, 
and I think maybe other people will relate to it in that same way when they when they when we unpack it a little bit. So you know, philology just means the study of the world through careful reading of texts, right? And that's something, of course, I've done my whole life long. Embodied, you know, barely needs an introduction. It means kind of, in some ways, it can be seen as the opposite of the world of text because it's not the abstract. It's about what you're feeling in your own body, what you're going through yourself. And so the idea of embodied philology is that instead of being this kind of, uh, you know, dusty philologist who takes themselves out of the experience and only relies on the authority of a dictionary or a concordance or another scholar's article, that you can bring your, you can put yourself in, into the interpretive process, right? As a kind of methodological intervention. And that you can use your senses and you can use your body and a, as long as you do it somewhat rigorously to kind of creatively try to understand how a given text might have been used, what practice they might have been referring to, and so on and so forth. And so everything we've been talking about in this conversation, to me, falls under the rubric of embodied philology, because I'm looking at texts and I'm trying to reconstruct how they were used by people with bodies, with voices, with ears, right? And I'm doing I'm doing that, that act of imagination or reconstruction is enabled by my own senses and my own faculties, right? And so embodied philology gives me a kind of label for that and gives me cover, if you will, because <laughs> yeah, sometimes in academia, people don't react well to kind of, you know, new innovations, you know, uh, but it gives me a kind of a, a way to talk about this process of reconstruction that's very natural to me because I'm just a musician because when I, you know, when I'm reading Sanskrit texts that are about chanting, I can't help but kind of read it out loud. You know, I'll be sitting in the library, you know, in my carol in the stacks, I kind of look around and make sure no one's nearby. And I, I might, you know, take like a passage like the Yukti passage that we just talked about and say it out loud. Ova, 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 humba, ova. I might say it out loud in a different way, right? I might try to think about, uh, you know, how, it would sound if I brought that text to life. And so that's what I see. Those are the virtues of embodied philology from my point of view. Now, you, as with any method, any intervention, you have to be careful how you use it. You can't substitute your own experience and your own assumptions and just assume that those are the same as were present in the text, right? Mm -hmm. But what you can do is use it to kind of inch your thinking forward in creative ways. And so the revelation that hit me when I was working on my, on my dissertation about Ohm being added to mantras that I wasn't seeing in printed editions, I think is an act of embodied philology because it's requiring me as a scholar to think about performance, to think about people chanting, making sounds, bringing texts to life, right? And that revelation would only have been possible uh, for someone who's kind of willing to go there, if you will, and not and to 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 deviate from pure textual analysis. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And 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 in the, in the context of yoga philology, also makes a lot of sense and, and is really helpful as we're finding and as as the scholars that you referenced at the Hatha Yoga Project have been finding. 
you know, when you're reading these Sanskrit manuscripts that are detailing where to put your foot in a particular asana or where. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes, <laughs> the, sometimes it's a little bit elusive, just the syntax or the grammar, mm. you know, these body parts. And then when you actually try to recreate or reenact an asana or a sequence of asanas, um, you learn a lot through the, the attempted act of recreation. Yes. And so I think it's, it's exciting that philologists and scholars who have rigorous methods of, of textual study can also be thinking about these more uh, experimental, if you will, or embodied dynamics of study that, that, that there's increasing value to, to that side of the equation. So I think yeah. you're a great example of that. Uh, Finn, and I think everything we've touched on today in some ways might even be summed up with that embodied philology uh, framework from the music to the ritual performances, you know, to, to, on, to how all of that helps us to interpret a text. So I just want to thank you so much for uh, this really rich and wide-ranging conversation today and helping me inaugurate the Yogic Studies podcast here. Hey, it was my pleasure, Seth. Thanks so much for this conversation. Yeah, you bet. We'll be in touch. And um, uh, thanks again, Finn. Okay, stay healthy. All right, you too. Take care.